City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City Limits. Okay, there's the theme, and it's City Limits. Um, Meg Kimber's on the show today. Meg, um, I'm Kevin. I'm Kevin Healy, of course. I'm, I'm no, of course, I'm Kevin Healy. Yeah. Cut, not of course. Um, <laughs> and Karina is pressing the buttons and keeping us and doing a magnificent job. Quite seriously, uh, we wouldn't be on air without Karina this last 12 months or so, so she's done a great job for us. Can I just clarify, and, Kevin, you actually said something sincerely, just a genuine, sincere, not ironic. Just No, this is a genuine, no, sincere. Genuine. And, yep. uh, and, of course, on today's program, it is our housing day, so we're going to be talking to... Irene Salidas Noyce, who's the Secretary of the Renters and Housing Union. Exactly. And Shane McGrath, one of our regulars from Housing with Age Action Group, will be on the second half of the program. I was going to mention in the second half with them, and I probably will mention with them, some events recently in Berlin, which I might get on to shortly. But I yeah. thought we should open, as usual, with the Herald Sun, Meg. Definitely. And, of course, this week, I thought the most outstanding performance was um, last week, a headline by Terry McCran, their so-called economic expert, who is an absolute uh, denier of climate change. But his headline, like, this is the Rupert Murdoch paper, as we know. I think most people are aware that Rupert Murdoch owns the Herald Sun. Mm. And the headline is, Murdoch and his most amazing decade ever. (laughs) <laughs> and and and, he, and on he goes, and he's fine. He's, the last paragraph sums it up. To me, the truly astonishing aspect is that when Murdoch launched on launched on the great, most extraordinary decade of entrepreneurial innovation and breathtaking risk taking, and most of all, <laughs> success that the world has ever seen, he had already been building his News Corp for 34 years, starting back in 1952 with just that one newspaper in Adelaide, and he's still there. And in between the headline and that are three columns of pure hagiography about St. Rupert. Oh, um, God. And I thought to myself, Terry McCran certainly knows where his bread's buttered. Oh, that's, a, that's what? That's amazing. So the, the, what did you say? The greatest success the world has ever seen. <laughs> That's it, Rupert. That's it. Yep, he is. Well, I mean, this week, Rupert's become, of course, a greenie now. Day after day, he's got all this stuff about greenie. Well, the Herald Sun now runs is running features on, on the new green economy, although one, mm-hmm. one day it was totally about nuclear. Mm-hmm. And its, its solution to nuclear waste was to recycle it, which I thought was pretty smart. You recycle it for about two several hundred thousand years. It's a good idea. Okay. Um, recycle it into what? Oh, I had some idea and turn it into something else. It's probably, it must be also radioactive, of course. But anyway, yeah. 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 Well, that's it for the old Rupert. Yeah. Um, anyway, that's that's this week's Herald Sun bit. But I thought yeah. Terry really showed which he knows which side his butter's bread on. He's mm. red's buttered on, what I'm trying to say. Mm. And just another one of those sort of things, uh, um, a, a news item through the week with the with the National Party and the Liberal Party trying to sort out the whole climate change thing so that Scott can go to, to Glasgow with, with some degree of uh, some degree of having something to say, although mm-hmm. he won't be much. Um, 
a news item last week said that that Scott and Barnaby, or Barnacle, and the words were, had been bashing out ideas. And I thought to myself, hmm. guess the odd one out here. What's guess the odd, the one, odd out? one out. Scott Morrison, Barnaby Joyce, and ideas. Okay. Which one doesn't fit? Well, well it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah, yeah, I'll leave you to think that one through. Give me a minute to think about that. Yeah, okay, um, yeah, you need a while, need a while. Need a while. I think that the international political landscape is quite clear about what Australia thinks about climate change and whether we're going to do anything. So, um, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if anything of any substance actually comes from this. But, um, you know, considering we're a country that petitioned the United Nations not to give a, 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 the Great Barrier Reef um, world heritage status. Um, you can kind of see. No, not to not to, not to declare it endangered. Not to declare it endangered, right? Yeah, right. yeah. So that's the kind of that sets. If nothing else, that's quite symbolic, isn't it? Of just being like, no, 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 no. Yeah. No, that's right. Well, the, well, we. I think. I think. Yeah. I think he gets there with the world knowing what he's like. So I don't think I there's too so many too. worries there. Yeah, yeah I don't yeah, think, I think they need right. to bash their heads too no. too much. Yeah. No. But one good item um, was last week, and we because of time last week, we didn't get round to raising it. But I think this was really important. Um, arising out of the the um, Extinction Rebellion activities last year, and you know when people were blocking the corner of Flinders Street, mm-hmm. the five people, six people, might have been five or six. Hang on, let me see. Yes, five other six people uh, funded the court the week before last. Uh, including Rachel Coffey, who's a who's a producer on the Gardening Australia show on the ABC, mm. and a number of other people for locking themselves down and all sorts of activities. And uh, the police said that the women were charged over the excessive use of the highway, which forced police to stop trams, buses, and cars from going about their normal business. <laughs> and and and, but the beautiful thing was that the in this case the magistrate found them not guilty mm. and um, she said it was in the public interest that these good citizens that's her quote good citizens mm. did not have convictions recorded against them mm. bearing in mind these are good citizens giving their time to the community in terms of their activities if you accept responsibility there is no finding against you and after a donation to the court fund is received, the matter is marked discharged without a criminal record. Mm. And all they, had, they had to put $100 into the, into the poor box, but that was it. But, mm. they were, but I think the, you know, the magistrate's comments there are really quite interesting in terms of, uh, mm. of, terms of activities like, like what um, the wonderful work that Extinction Rebellion does. Very interesting. I mean, I guess, I guess it seems to indicate that it depends on who the magistrate is that you see on the day that you go and going to the court from the sound of it. Yeah, I must have, I didn't say it, but the, the yeah. magistrate was a woman called Pauline Spencer with whom I had some dealings many years ago and, and some activities. So, um, yeah, I know yeah. Pauline, but anyway, yeah, oh, I knew yeah. Pauline. I don't know, I haven't seen her in years, but yeah. yeah. Well, um, that's a, I mean, the, this is an interesting place that, we're com- that we've come to in terms of um, interpretation of legislation and also courts I guess have always played a role in certain issues like for example how to protect world heritage status which we saw very clearly in the Franklin Dams case in um, in uh, Tasmania 
back in the day that sometimes states won't act in the best interest of a population, a community. And then if individuals do try to take action, sometimes that can be seen as a good thing under the law or interpreted in that way. Yeah. Yeah, but it's, but it's a bit variable, it seems, whether it is or not. Yeah, it certainly hasn't helped me in my case. <laughs> <laughs> but have but, you, I mean, you're still out and about. In, you're not, you're not locked up. Well, we did beat, no, we beat one rap blocking a freeway. We, we yeah. proved the government, the work, we proved, but we had to prove the works themselves were illegal, so we couldn't be charged with blocking oh. something that was illegal. Interesting. Uh, but, but most of the others were to do with anti-war activities, and uh, the magistrates didn't smile on that too well at all. No. Um, but, but what uh, about the climate change stuff, about governments having a responsibility to their younger citizens to avert climate? Well, that was, um, that was ruled in the federal court for the, right. you know, the young people who took it to court. And, of course, the minister who was told that she had to, uh, Susan Lees, who was told that she had mm. a responsibility to that generation, has appealed the case. So it's still it's on appeal because she appeal, says right. she doesn't have a responsibility. So we... <laughs> the appeal hasn't been heard yet, like, but we'll see what happens. So insane that we've come. I mean, I don't know if it's always been like this or what, but like it's like double speak. It's like governments are literally, I don't know what else you could say a government was there for than to protect the rights of its citizens. And oh, well, apparently it isn't. And yeah. then, well, the, the appeal will sort that one out, yeah. I suppose. Listen, yeah, Meg, yeah. I, I want to, I've got to criticise you. You forgot to remind me to do this, and it's a terrible thing. Oh, here we go. Kevin, remember to pour the tea. There we are. Thank you, Meg. I've just poured it. There we are. Um, Do you want to yeah, go again? I just did it. I was talking. Didn't you hear that? No. Oh, you want me to... I'll put it back in the pot then and pour it again. I thought, oh, dear me, that's... Hang on. I'll just pour it back in and then I'll have to pour it back in again. So here we go. This is a very important part of the program. Here we are. Did you hear that? I did, yeah. Oh, that's good. That's good. Okay, and but on the negative side, though, also announced last week, we know we've been criticising the handouts to big employers who mm. uh, ripped off millions of of the JobKeeper scheme. Mm. But you'll be pleased to know that seven hundred and fifty million dollars of JobKeeper went to the biggest private schools in the country. I'm really glad to hear that. They're really yeah. struggling those schools. Poor dears. Yeah. King's School in Sydney, which is probably regarded as maybe the, the biggest, you know, the most elite private school in the country, it got eight and a half million. Uh, oh. And yes, and Wesley College here in Melbourne got 18.2 million in JobKeeper. Wow. Brighton St. Leonard's chalked up 6.2 million. Essendon Grammar, 9 million. Geelong Grammar, 8.3 million. How could you get $18 million in JobKeeper? Was it the CEO in a year who earns $18 million? Good question, isn't it? But it doesn't say. It just says Melbourne's elite Wesley College received $18.2 million in JobKeeper but recorded a 2020 surplus of $2.1 million. <laughs> wow. Okay. Speaking of $750 million, if I might just quickly change the subject, if that's okay the class action against the government for the robo-debt is all sort of being finished up now. And from memory, I think they've had to repay something like $700 million or something. I'm terrible with numbers, but it was a really significant yeah, uh, amount. Yeah, huge amount. Yeah. 
Have you seen that reported anywhere? Because I heard about it because I'm part of the class action, but um, I hadn't seen or read it. No, I haven't seen the figure, but it's interesting that, you know, they have to do that, whereas uh, the government didn't even bother to put any sort of reclaw clause at all in the legislation for JobKeeper because they knew it wouldn't be necessary because who would imagine an employer ripping off uh, a government subsidy, for goodness sake? Indeed, indeed. Where, yeah. Whereas those bloody unemployed people, good heavens, yeah. I mean, yeah. just can't compare them, can you? No. Well, in fact, you can't. Because yeah. <laughs> yeah. the other lot rip off big time. I mean, yeah. And, of course, the thing about robo-debt was, as you know, me, because you're involved, but uh, most, you know, 99% of the people were totally innocent. Completely, completely. And just really harassed and scared because you're so financially vulnerable when you when the risk is that you either repay a false and incorrect debt or you lose your payments i mean they just take it and some of the time they just took it out of people's tax returns without them knowing without any notice because it's such a chaotic system so i love seeing that this case has come to bring justice to people and i think everyone whether or not they sort of signed up for the case or not I may be wrong about this, but I think everybody who received one of these debts will have uh, the debt wiped and repaid and um, will also probably receive compensation. And ought to. Yeah. And, I mean, don't quote me on that. If anyone is listening and has a robot debt, check with Centrelink and check your correspondence. And But um, that's my understanding. Yes, and I, I'm, I'm going to mention later in the program, but I think it's Housing Day. I thought it really worth mentioning that on the day of the recent German election, mm. the people of Berlin got the right to a referendum because mm. their housing was privatised, it's been privatised over the years. 84% of people in Berlin rent, and rents have always been controlled by the government, but they were private, so the place was privatised and... For instance, one landlord has alone has 100,000 units, 100,000 properties mm. in Berlin, and the referendum was for the government to buy back these properties yeah. so that the rents could be lowered again and controlled by government, and the referendum was carried. 56% of voters supported it, mm. and now it's up, to the, it's up to the new government. Now, the Greens ran second in the local council election, to the Social Democrats, the Greens had said they would support and buy the this housing. The, the Social Democrats haven't committed. They're, they've actually won, but I think there's going to be some sort of mixed government, of course. Mm. We'll wait and see what happens, but at least the people there are getting up and and trying to create something for themselves in terms mm. of getting the these out, out totally out of control rents brought back into 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 uh, into line with what they can afford, and it's it's been a city where people have been able to afford for for decades yeah. housing by you know through rentals, and it's a much better situation with people renting, particularly if most of it was government owned. And of course, mm. the problem yet again has been caused because they privatised what was public housing, and surprise, surprise, the people now find themselves unable to afford the rents. Absolutely, and certain and people sort of private. Private property owners are doing very well, but people living in Berlin aren't. And, and Berlin was, like you say, it was a place that had very creative and, you know, options for people to have long-standing tenancies and things. And I saw, also think, you know, unlike Australia, there was a lot more 
but I'm not sure of the numbers, but a lot more communally owned dwellings and things like that we see in, in North America as well, like cooperatives, housing cooperatives and things like that. And they've been increasingly turned into privately owned dwellings. And so the protest is calling for a rent cap and to stop the conversion of these publicly owned or communally owned dwellings to go into private property and yeah be interesting to watch how that develops yep and we must be close to out of time aren't we, are. we to go to we our need first to guest go to our first guests all right well um after this break you can announce what's going to happen after this break after the break, we'll have Irini Salidas Noyce from the Renters and Housing Union joining us. And after Irini, we'll be talking to Shane McGrath from the Housing for the Aged Action Group. Don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid? Tune into the Dogs Program. We are the defenders of government schools. 12 pm on Saturdays here on 3CR. 855 and AM Dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. We defend government schools because they need it. City Limits producer Karina here. The song I'm going to go to today before we move on to our interviews is Spelt Out by Pinch Points. Uh, It's about the Department of Human Services. Actually now Services Australia, not human anymore, but I hope you enjoy the song nonetheless. I didn't know what to do with my life I didn't have a clue But it was alright Because you see I was given a handbook A manual, if you will By the DHS No less And I got a stress But it really helped It turned my I own my own house and I'm happily married and self-employed. But 
Okay, we're back on City Limits and we've got our first guest for the day, Rennie Salidas Noyce, who's from the Rental and Housing Union. And um, Rennie, it's a fairly new union. How, how did it come into being and, and how do you go about the work you do? Sure, thanks for having me, everyone. Um, so the Renters and Housing Union was formed officially in May of last year. And we were formed basically out of the COVID-19 pandemic and the rent strike that started in March um, last year. Essentially from March onwards, we were organising with each other and um, contacting fellow renters who were also not able to make rent. And through that few months, we started organising local meetings and local um, support networks for each other. By May, each local group had voted to unionise and, and Rahu was born which has been an incredibly exciting thing to have uh, for, for, you know, people who are renting, who are living in public and community housing, and also for rough sleepers and people who are, you know, in higher and higher amounts, couch surfing and staying with friends due to the issues with the pandemic and the fact that housing has become completely unaffordable. So through the last year or more, it's now October, so we've existed for about a year and a half um, as a union. We've been working in local branches, so we now have a local branch in the western suburbs, inner western suburbs, the inner Melbourne CBD, and also in the north side, which um, have some pretty huge campaigns that they're working on, as well as like some great outreach they're doing to their local communities. And part of the work that they're currently working towards is around shared real estate agencies who are completely like doing what they've done the whole pandemic, which is pushing people for higher rents. Um, Despite what the moratorium had said, they're looking at, you know, uh, making further pushes to evict people who are in severe hardship um, and financial distress. So we've, now that we're working more as each branch, um, we're seeing the common, common trends that we've been stuck with before the pandemic and afterwards, which is that rent's too high, real estate agents are not doing what their responsibilities are to make sure that we have, um, you know, safe, adequate and maintained properties and, you know, trying to discuss things with each other around how we can better protect our fellow renters and, and, and neighbours in our networks. Yeah. What, what have you noticed since the moratorium on evictions ended at the beginning? Or, yeah, it's quite a while ago now. I think it was in the end of March this year. What, what have you seen on the ground? Yeah, so the moratorium lasted for a total of 12 months and a huge part of what we were doing in Rahu last year was pushing for it to be extended. Um, obviously, we saw that extended three times until March 29 and it was quite evident throughout the length of the moratorium that there were quite a number of loopholes that landlords were using. Those loopholes being that the landlord was selling, um, was moving into the home or was doing significant renovations. And we're seeing the same grounds to evict past March 29th, the end of the moratorium. And I think that's predominantly, look, it could be, it could be that people who are landlords are in hardship enough to decide to sell a home. And the property market is absolutely showing that 
the house prices are exponentially rising and again unregulated um, just like rental markets are so I think you know while it could be the case that landlords are actually needing to sell often they're not they're using that as the grounds they can have to evict people and then they'll set the rent higher once they've ended that tenancy agreement so we're seeing the same things that we saw in the pandemic and we're seeing a higher number of them, if that makes sense. So yeah. once the moratorium lifted, we saw a higher number of uh, notices to vacate because they were back on the table. We saw a higher number of rent increases, but both of those things were still being sent to, to renters despite them being illegal during the moratorium. So it's just seen a higher number of the same problems, mm. I guess, if I can summarise it that way. But, yeah, since the moratorium lifted, we kept pushing for the reinstatement of rental protections, including the rent reduction scheme um, and including the moratorium itself because, obviously, we hit higher numbers than we ever have had and they're still rising today, I think, is the highest number we've had this year. So, you know, something that our members have consistently said is that we can't go back to COVID normal because normal's not been good enough. And so I think that's predominantly where we're coming at it from um, from a renter's perspective. Past the moratorium is we need to actually see better regulation of the market and, and ways that can actually create a longer-term tenancy for people past a six-month or a three-month offer. We want to see long-term stable and affordable housing. Yeah, and, and just on that, when... When can you take out taking up people's cases? Are you able to have standing before tribunals, for instance, or how do you take up the cases and fight for people? Sure. I mean, everyone's um, got a right to represent themselves and have someone else represent them. And we often work to make sure that our members feel confident and empowered to self-represent. However, we do support many of our members in, in VCAT. Our right. first annual report uh, has shown that we've successfully waived um, over 126700 uh, sorry, $126,700 um, for our members in the last 12 months through our casework. And a lot of that is through negotiation with agencies, with landlords, and obviously many of them have been VCAT cases. But that said, a lot of that comes from our, our members representing themselves or having support from a community legal centre as well as our own support team on their cases, if that makes sense. But in terms of representing, um, our members do that themselves for the most part, if not from a CLC. Mm. Well, I noticed, by the way, there was a report came out a couple of months ago, and this is... <laughs> creates a real problem, um, about a billion dollars in federal government spending for homelessness and social housing, as well, they call it social housing, has been cut in the past decade, including $45.6 in Victoria and, the, and homelessness, homelessness Australia at that point um, said you know, this was absolutely hopeless, the high cost of rents and people's inability to afford those rents is the biggest issue, um, live, you know, creating homelessness but um you know these are pretty serious things that these also need to be fought don't they these cuts to these services yeah i think funding cuts is a predominant aspect of uh the liberal party <laughs> um but also generally um there's been an issue with 
not providing funding for preventative measures. Um, and I think our position in Rahu has always been that public housing is a preventative health measure, not only in a pandemic, but generally for people's ability to have a roof over their head. We, we have demonstrated, like, not that you need research to give people a home, but there is demonstrably a huge amount of research that shows just how much that can change someone's life and outlook and future like possibilities. So I think there needs to be a huge amount more funding into specifically public housing, and that's one of our union's demands and has been for a very long time. Um, and funding for support services is absolutely integral, but I do think that funding support services doesn't hit at the central root of the problem, which is regulating rental markets. If we can't stop, if, if the government is not willing to cap the unfettered growth of the rental market, then we're just going to see higher and higher unaffordability. So I totally agree with, with, um, with what you're saying there, Kevin, about what the perspective has generally been. And once we actually see the government taking a national housing policy that regulates rental caps, that, that caps those rental um, prices, then we're going to keep feeding the sort of Band-Aid solutions to that, to that central problem. Um, so it's, it's kind of a yes and for me, like, yes, yeah. fund yeah. social supports, but also don't skirt around the actual issue there and, and actually look at regulating the market. Yes, and well, of course, what, what we see is the reverse in some ways. Money's being put in, but it's going into the private sector, into social housing, into community housing. Uh, I noticed there's an article uh, just last week that a place mob called Conscious Investment Management is spending $150 million to acquire social and affordable housing stock in Melbourne to rent to tenants on Victoria's public housing list. So they're actually acquiring the stock, but then they get a government handout for the rental and they expect to make the normal yield that landlords generally get on property. So here you've got a, a mob buying into effectively public housing, which in the long term will make rental more expensive for anyone using it. I think there's generally a shift at the moment to just to privatise what should be public housing. Um, I think there are a number of contracts and a number of companies and corporations who are making quite a big profit out of um, involving themselves in the sector that should be public. So, yeah, I think it's a really, look, in one reading, it's a complex issue. There needs to be more housing, full stop. No one disagrees on that. That said, the issues with that we've found with our members in community tenancies has been predominantly that their rental price is not capped where, as it should be at 30%. They have higher issues with maintenance, higher issues with um, co-tenancy disputes and, and violence um, and abuse from, from managers and property managers as well. I think there's definitely issues with the sector, which is why that, that you know, community housing regulations review should be quite a significant thing. But, yeah, I think there's a pretty big shift that started with the narrative being shifted to talk about social housing instead of being clear about the difference between community and public housing. So using the term social housing lumps them all in together and I don't see the, the current Victorian government doing enough to make that distinction and to say that, yes, we're funding through the big housing build more housing, 
And as part of that funding, this is the percentage we're giving to public housing tenancies. And we still haven't seen the figure on that. So I do think that, you know, while the government might be want to might be wanting to shirk that responsibility a little bit onto community providers, it's just not good enough because we know what happens when that when people go into community tenancies and if it's not capped at 25%, you're losing thousands of people who can't afford anything more into the private market. And again, yeah, we'll see them in the same statistics of people who are sleeping rough. So mm. we do really believe that it's a solution there to, to actually put the money down first and fund public housing and see, like, if it needs to be an economic argument, see the returns on that in the next 10 to 20 years in other um social service spending that they might not have to make but uh, that's not where our angle is our angle is very much that it's 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 a given and it shouldn't be questioned that the government has a public responsibility to provide public resources with public funds Mm. you're listening to city limits on 3cr and we're joined by irene salidas noise who's the secretary of the renters and housing union in a minute we're going to also be joined by Shane McGrath from Housing for the Aged Action Group. Before that, I wanted to ask Arini about the fact that Rahu is member-run and what it means for that to be the way that it operates. That's such a good question. Um, (laughs) So (laughs) member-run basically for us is that we're, as renters, we're all in the union and as, as people who do this as a member-run union, we're essentially doing this completely volunteer. We're completely independent for that reason as well. So we don't run for profit. We run through our membership funds and those membership funds are by all of us paying dues. And everyone that organises in the union does that completely voluntarily. And in terms of being member-run, the way our constitution works the way our, our structure of the union works is that our members have, they have the voice and the vote to decide what their demands are, to decide how we take on campaigns and which campaigns we take on. Each local branch has their voice and vote to decide what direction the union takes. And I think that's an in- integrally important aspect to organising, particularly as a union, because as people affected, we're going to know our experiences and the outcomes ourselves the most and we're also going to be the most motivated to fight for them as well so if that helps explain member run the other other way of describing it is rank and file to me that's sort of the same thing yeah yeah well we're joined by shane from housing the age action group thanks for joining us shane uh, thanks Mike. how you doing good um and i hear that you know a bit about rahu as well I am a proud dues paying member of Rahu. That's right. <laughs> I really hope that I'll get along to him in my local meeting sometime soon. Yay. It's great to see you again, Shane. <laughs> um, You'll be able to, Shane. That's the important thing. Wow. Um, <laughs> which is well, very good, yeah. But also, um, you, you say, talk about raising those. Um, those uh, raising those issues, but you recently did a report, Arena, and um, can you give us some of the detail that came out of that? Sure. Yeah, we've um, recently published our first annual report, and the way that it's been written is basically to look at our general year of cases in terms of what's been coming. In the last 12 months that we've existed, we've had 
pretty much a team of three or four caseworkers at any given time. And between three or four people, we've managed to handle more than 84 cases. We've measured our longer term cases there and we've seen more than $126,000 of disputed money, meaning money that could have gone to landlords' pockets, we've managed to save for our members. We've also looked at who we supported and also what the key issues have been for a lot of people. And obviously, rental debt has been one of them. Unaffordable housing and the rising of rents has been a huge issue as well. And Of course, the issues with accessing rent reductions over the pandemic has been a a huge issue in terms of real estate agents deferring rents. And I think as we move into, you know, quote unquote, COVID normal, we're going to still continue to organise around those issues. But our new sort of what we do out of the pandemic is predominantly going to be around the fact that renting is unaffordable and that we need to look at capping rents um, and organising against agencies who are continuing to exploit us for, for money, <laughs> to put it simply. So, yeah, you can find the report on our website at rahu.org.au and, yeah, always keen to hear people's feedback and um, perspectives on, on where we go next, of course. And Shane, of course, these are issues you've known about for a long time. Comment on those on those issues. I think it's just like really impressive how much Rahu's achieved in, you know, is this the first annual report, the first year of its existence, one of the hardest possible years to have started organising anything in. Uh, I think it's really <laughs> remarkable. Um, I haven't digested the whole annual report, but some of those figures are, are just really incredible. Thanks, Shane. Yeah. Thanks, fellow Rahu again. <laughs> Look, can I raise one? Either of you can answer this or both of you for like. Last Sunday, I spent two hours in a queue at St Vincent's waiting to have a COVID test. And there were two young blokes, by my standards anyway, in front of me. They were talking about their respective jobs. And one was a manager of a community housing body out in the eastern suburbs. And he, he quite denounced public housing and said, that, you know, we're much better because... In public housing, people have no pride in what their, their places, they damage them, they, they, they vandalise them. And on he went with a diatribe against public housing. Your comment on those sort of thoughts? I mean, it's just disgusting and telling that community housing landlords are comfortable expressing those like outright prejudices like right, right out in public. It, it, it's totally disgusting. It has no basis in reality you know we see again and again how how supportive of each other public housing communities can be this guy obviously has a direct financial interest in maintaining that prejudice but uh you know you'd think they'd have some the the sense to keep it to themselves you know right right out there in public i mean i'm sure he didn't expect it to be broadcast on 3cr but nevertheless i don't think he did check the line next time you're getting a COVID test to see if kevin healy's in there somewhere (laughs) any comment from you arini oh just absolute agreement with that i think it's really telling um and it's yeah i think it's important to like to look at the finan- who's financially gaining from this shift from public housing and how long-standing the stigmatisation of public housing has been. I mean, it doesn't come from people who live in public housing and mm. you've, got to, you've got to really wonder who's gaining from that stigmatisation for sure. 
Can I also raise, because there's been, you know, we've, there's been headlines, they get very excited. They talk, while they talk about affordable housing, you get the same people saying, isn't it wonderful, new price record was in Friday's Herald Sun front page. House values defy lockdown and surge 3.32 a day. Uh, prices soar as land dries up. But then there's other headlines like too many households deep in debt and the fact that if interest rates go up even slightly, many people could land out in the street who are now paying mortgages. Uh, but all these point toward an increased need for rentals, but that in, in itself then with supply and demand forces rentals up. So we're facing a pretty nasty prospect, aren't we, unless something's done to, to offset all that. There's a few things that you mentioned there. I mean, I've been looking through the news last weekend and, and noticed that at the same time that there are articles saying that Melbourne is now the cheapest place to rent, there are also articles going up about, you know, as a, a tiny, dingy, squalid apartment going for 800 a week. So people can cherry-pick details about what the market looks like depending on what their message is, right? And I agree that you know, absolutely housing prices and the housing bubble is a, a central part of the Australian economy to the detriment, particularly of anyone who doesn't have a high income. You know, more than 40% of people who rent, which is 30% of our population, are of the lowest incomes in Australia. And yeah, like while some people might be um, investing in higher and higher amounts of, of homes, well, to them, it's property. Let's be honest, there's a difference. That, that does have a hugely detrimental effect. So I don't think we should be relying on landlords to provide housing. They don't always do that. They are, they are doing that for their best investment interests. And I think that's why the government has a responsibility to step in and provide public housing because there's a huge proportion of our population that needs it. In saying that, I mean, there was also a recent article about the, the latest Pandora uh, leak of information, like the Panama Papers, and it looks at just how many private investors are, are, are banking on being able to do that quite exploitatively in Australia. So I think there's like a fair amount of areas of regulation needed in Australian housing, but also to look more to solutions that don't see the private interest benefiting, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and just to sort of finish on that cherry-picking note of, of what it looks like to rent and how these prices are rising and falling, just because Melbourne City might look cheaper now compared to everywhere else doesn't mean it's cheap. And I think that's really important to know that, like, it's risen 750% in a decade and it's still rising. Um, and just to say that we're cheaper now doesn't mean that it's going to be affordable to anyone. Very good point. Yeah. Yeah. Have either of you been following the developments recently in Berlin at all? Uh, I wouldn't say following. Very interested, but struggling a little to find as much in English as I would like. Yes, they, they recently, in fact, the day of their federal election, Berlin itself had a, had a separate referendum as well, urging the local authorities to expropriate the housing, um, the private housing market, because rents are going through the roof. And it's 84% of people in Berlin are tenants, but of course, since the um, amalgamation of the city going back, the public housing has been privatised. And in fact, one private landlord has a hundred thousand units in Berlin. That's extraordinary, isn't it? But anyway, that, but the, the referendum was carried, so they're urging the government to actually buy back in order to stop rents getting totally out of control. 
Yeah, I think that we've seen like across a whole range of countries, there's widespread popular support for nationalization of services, nationalization of different kinds of resources and things like that. You know, the, the privatization manias of the, well, I guess the 90s on were never particularly popular, I don't think. And uh, yeah, people need to take back control of their own communities. Yeah, it's, um, uh, you're right. It's happening all over the world. There are other other cities, um, in fact, London, Paris, Rome, there's all over the world. And in fact, in parts of Asia as well, in Thailand and and in Argentina and in America, there, there's just all over the world, there's people complaining about the cost of housing. It's becoming a major international issue. Indeed. And um, sorry to just interject here, but we will have to let Irene go and get back to the good work that she's doing at Rahu. But before you go, uh, can I ask if anyone's listening and they want to get involved with the work that you do there, how do people become members and what's in it for them? That's pretty obvious. But... <laughs> well, that's a great question. What's, what's the union ever done for me? Um, so if you're a renter, you should join the union and you can join by going to rahu.org.au. That's R-A-H-U. You can sign up there and you can also be in touch with your local branch. And we have some amazing delegates doing some really good work so they can get in touch with you pretty quickly and we'll give you a call. And yeah, I guess I just wanted to say as well, Kevin, talking about what this looks like in the in the global scale and as a fellow renter and IWW member, I think it's really important to look at that global picture and to realise that as renters, we are in a renting class of people who don't own property. And for that reason, organising with each other on an international scale is like an incredibly exciting thing and it's great to see it happening. Um, thank you for having me, everyone. And it's been a really, really awesome conversation. Thanks, yeah, well, thank you for your point. Thank you for your time, Irene. Yeah, mm. yeah. It's always a pleasure. Okay. Thanks for that. And, um, well, Shane, we'll move on because um, you're here to talk also about what's happening at the Housing with the Age Action Group. Um, so tell us what's happening at the Housing with the Age Action Group. <laughs> uh, I mean, all the usual things, I guess. Today, it's a little bit awkward timing because we've been pretty concerned about something that the Senate is voting on today as we record this, but several days ago by the time anyone gets to listen yeah, we're to recording it. Yeah, we're recording on Monday afternoon. We'll let people know, yeah. Yeah, so the, the Senate today is set to vote on some new charity regulations that were introduced a while ago. Uh, these are the ones that have been widely decried in the sector for their sort of chilling effect on not-for-profit organisations' ability to uh, do advocacy work, to, uh, you know, support protest activities, things like that. So they would require charities uh, like HAG, uh, like 3CR, to ensure that their resources are not used to promote any unlawful activities uh, in specific kinds. So, for example, trespassing. So the concern is that if you were to say, you know, post on your Facebook page that you, uh, you know, support the, the climate strike and then somebody at the strike was to go and occupy an office, that you would, would be in serious trouble uh, at risk of losing your charitable status under these laws. Is this um, federal government or state government? Yeah, federal government. So... Mm. Uh, there's been pretty widespread criticism of that idea. Uh, the Senate has the opportunity today to, to vote down the, the regulations. Um, apart from the obvious kind of 
concerns about authoritarianism and all that stuff, uh, it's just going to be massively expensive for charities to implement the kinds of uh, oversight and regulation that it would take to, to deal with this. Sorry, I, I know that's a bit, uh, a bit boring and a bit tangential to housing stuff, but that's something that we've been thinking about today. Is it is it making it a criminal activity or is it just making it something where the people where the organizations will lose their tax deductible status and right. lose their funding? Yeah, so my understanding is that it's to do with tax deductible status. Um, as soon as I heard hear the words tax, uh, <laughs> anything to do with tax, my my eyes roll back in my head and my attention span completely disappears. So I, I can't really talk you through the details. But yeah, that, well, that's what I understand. But that that status makes a, a charity basically it can make the difference between a viable and an uh, unviable organisation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. They can't fund themselves. Yeah, that's right. Mm. Yeah, oh, well, it's, um, so it, so it's a bit. Uh, it's it's probably stretching it a bit to say that three CR should not be involved in political discussion at all, because otherwise we'd probably be we'd be twenty four hours a day of, of dead <laughs> air. I would think. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm not really sure how it might affect 3CR in particular. I probably shouldn't have said that, but lots of other charities, you know, food banks, uh, lots of places, family violence services, are all very concerned about how this is going to affect them. And oh, for, like it. the payday for the lawyers who are going to be needed to sort this stuff out. Mm. Yeah, well, groups like FOE, Friends of the Earth, they're, they're quite concerned about it because... Tech, you know, they could well they could well lose it because they do get involved in a little bit of political activity. Mm-hmm. Well, as well they should, as well all kinds of charities should. You know, what's, you know, is it Anatoly France, the famous saying when I, wait, or was it Mother Teresa? I can't even remember. When I feed the poor, they call me a saint. When I ask why people are poor, they call me a communist. That's right. No, that's been mooted for some time, that bill, unfortunately, and let's hope it gets knocked off. Do you know much about that, whether it's, you know, whether the cross benches are going to, get on side for once and, and, and knock it off? I think it's really unclear to me. I, I don't think that's come across in the reporting on it. The, uh, unfortunately, or fortunately, as the case may be, there's been bigger issues in Australian politics today. Uh, so it was hard to find any, any detailed reporting about it amidst the uh, you know, latest news about what the National Party is deciding for the whole country about climate change. Oh yes, yeah. as long as they get enough billions, they'll, um, they'll support something. Yeah, I think that's right. One of the things that I was thinking about with um, having Irina here from the Renters and Housing Union and also the work that you guys do at HAG is just how few people actually know and really understand what their rights are as renters. Do you notice that when people come and get support from HAG that they really don't have a clear understanding of what's going on and what their rights are? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really true. You see it at, at every level from, you know, people who don't know specifically what their rights are, mm. you know, like on a sort of clause by clause basis, which is understandable. But yeah. people who are just so, you know, misled about the whole nature of the system of rights that they have, people who yeah. think, for example, that the real estate agent is a neutral mediator between them and the landlord. Yeah. Uh, well, they have some bad news coming, I tell you what. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But it's a, a relatively common misconception. And I, I also think people seem to trust that real estate agents tell them things that are true and accurate, which they don't. And yeah. um, that the person, you know, people, even just in conversation anecdotally, people will say, oh, but I, I was told I couldn't get my bond back for that. I was like, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> double check. Yeah. Yeah. And I, but I mean, you have the, the converse problem. You know, I see on Facebook all the time that someone's posted in, you know, fairy floss real estate, this or that legal question, and they get 
you know, 500 people give them answers. Yep. You know, half, like half of them are probably right and half of them are crazy and half of them are just misguided. But um, there's no way for them to sort, sort that out. It's, yep. it's really hard for people a lot of the time to find accurate information about their rights. This is a pity because I have great admiration for that industry, the real estate profession, and I admire them as a profession because they're the only profession I know where in situations like between renters and landlords, but also when selling houses uh, on behalf of the owner to the vet to the buyer, they can represent both sides of every argument. It's wonderful, I think, because they can do that, um, and yet you've just knocked that on the head. Yeah, well, look, I'm sorry to disabuse you of your notion, Kevin. <laughs> yes, you have disabused. <laughs> we just have a couple more minutes of Shane's time. I'm imagining that you've got about 10 things you wanted to ask him about, Kevin. Can you pick one? No, well, I, I was going to say to Shane, anything else he wants to add in terms of what's happening around, around Hague? Well, so another thing that we've been looking at is the National Construction Code Review. I truly have the most boring <laughs> list of talking points today, but I promise these are important. <laughs> So yesterday, the second and final round of feedback to the Australian Building Codes Board finished up. Why this is important is because they're looking at energy efficiency standards for all new buildings in Australia. Um, so obviously, this is crucially important for older renters, uh, not so much now, but into the future. Um, utility bills are one of the biggest concerns that we hear from older people in rentals in Victoria. Um, the inadequate standard of heating and cooling and insulation, you know, there was some improvement to that uh, with the, the rental reforms that passed earlier this year that introduced a minimum standard about heating, but there's still no minimum standard about insulation, which means essentially your right is, you know, you have a right to a heater, but you don't have a right to keep any of the hot air inside your dwelling. Um, <laughs> So they've yeah. uh, the feedback on that has just closed. The feedback process was itself extremely confusing. You know, some government reviews, it's pretty easy for ordinary people to have their input. This was, was not one of those cases. Uh, but the feedback process now has closed. Um, that information is going to go to state governments who have to make decisions about it and to, uh, I believe, to the federal energy minister. But it is actually a, a really important area for people to follow and get involved in, um, especially as we're going to need to apply pressure to the state governments to meaningfully follow up on that. And if that is something that you're interested in, I recommend checking out swelteringcities.org forward slash NCC uh, for more information. NCC? NCC for National Construction Code. Right. Excellent. Thanks, Shane. Excellent. All right. Yeah. Um, I just noticed, by the way, Shane, yet another, in the last couple of days, yet another um, big developer has announced they're going to develop a, a state school site. This one's out near Ivanhoe somewhere, and it's yet another example. There's no mention at all of anything even looking like affordable, whatever that means anyway, let alone anything else. It's just another well, piece of public public real estate being developed by a private developer for profit. I mean, of course, there's no surprise here. You know, the, we can't even get public housing built on the public housing renewal sites. I don't know how you would no. think that we would get like anywhere else. Silly me again. You're, you're tearing me to pieces this morning, Chuck. <laughs> oh, uh, and I mean, this is in the context that, you know, the the scheme that has housed people who are otherwise homeless, otherwise rough sleeping during the pandemic is now coming to an end. Um, many, I, I don't have numbers, but, you know, hundreds or thousands of people set to be evicted from crisis housing 
the government has shown that homelessness is a decision that they make, a choice that they make, that they can house people, they can accommodate people, and they're just choosing not to do that. Um, when homeless people were perceived as a risk to the rest of the community because of COVID, uh, there was there was money to house them. Now they're just, you know, a sort of embarrassing eyesore. We'll put them right back out on the streets. So uh, we need to make homelessness dangerous to uh, to to the parliament again. Uh, then maybe we'll see some real change. <laughs> well, that's a good well, note to finish up on. Sure, sure, sure. Hag will be happy that that's what I've shared on the radio this week. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, I'm, well, after that Shane, you might get on next month. We'll wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> All right, look, Shane, thanks for your time this morning, and uh, it's been good again, wonderful again. And Shane McGrath from the Hazard with the Ace Action Group, of course, and uh, that's today's program. And and just next week, um, it's good news actually. David Spratt, who over ten years ago wrote Code Red, and is one of the, I think, one of the preeminent preeminent and most knowledgeable people on climate change issues in Australia. He's going to come on next week because next week's program, of course, is right on the eve of the Glasgow conference. And so David Spratt next week will talk to us about those issues. And I think we'll find it very interesting indeed. If you're a renter experiencing hardship due to the pandemic, you can check now to see if you're eligible to apply for the Victorian Government's new one-off rental relief grant worth up to $1,500. To help you, Tenants Victoria have put together an eligibility checklist. This will make it easier for you to assess whether you're eligible to apply for the grant, which is paid as a contribution towards rent. There are some steps involved to qualify for the grant. See the checklist for more information and visit the Tenants Victoria website for further details on how to apply. Go to tenantsvic.org.au and search for Rent Relief Grants. Tenants Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labour force